what's happening is that we're being told that religion is irrational because one of the basic premises of religion is that you're believing in something you can't see, right? Which is the divine. Arguably, that's the same premise for uh, secularism. You're asking me to believe in something I can't see, which are borders on the world. These borders don't actually exist. Welcome to Canon Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin, and today we have with us Dr. Hussein Rashid, professor at Columbia University and founder of Islamikit, a consultancy focusing on religious literacy and cultural competency. On the academic side, what kind of subjects have you taught over the years and what, what has been your most memorable? So I've taught a variety of different courses. Uh, I do comparative courses like uh, Life, Death, and Immortality, uh, Christ- uh, Christianity and Islam, the History of Christian-Muslim Relations, um, as well as more Islam-focused courses, Intro to Islam, uh, Islam in North America, Sufism. Uh, I've also done uh, a small seminar on uh, Musics of the Muslim World, a uh, seminar on Shiism, uh, polit- I've done courses on political Islam, Islam in the post-colonial world, um, and I've started teaching a new course now on religion and popular culture. I've also done classic texts of the Muslim world. So, you know, in terms of academic study of religion, it's been very Islam-focused with a little bit of comparative work. Um, at the seminary level, uh, when I was at an Episcopal seminary, Virginia Theological Seminary, I offered a course on uh, biblical stories in the Quran, and for uh, Reconstructionist Rabbinical College for several years, I was offering or taking part in a course called Islam for Rabbis, uh, which helped, uh, which was trying to uh, introduce Islam to rabbis and how to prepare for living in a multi-faith world, or you know, doing religious work in a multi-faith world. I think my most uh, memorable course. Uh, there's so many, and for so many different reasons. You know, I'm, I always feel like I'm learning from my students, uh, but I'm very excited by the religion and popular culture course right now because it's new for me. And I really like the Shiism seminar because it allowed me to dig into some history and some texts and push some of my own research that I was working on at the same time. Uh, so those were probably two courses that really stuck with me at the moment. So over the past decade, we're actually seeing a growing number of courses and programs in Middle Eastern studies, Islamic studies, uh, especially at American colleges and universities. Has there also been substantial progress to increase courses on the diversity within Muslim traditions, particularly from the Shia perspective? You know, I think there's been a, a real visibility, a real increase in the visibility of courses related to Islam, particularly after September 11th uh, in the United States. A lot of the survey data, you know, people who study this, doesn't really seem like the number of courses is actually increasing. It just seems like there's a greater visibility. The number of courses seems to be fairly stagnant, um, if not declining slightly. What happened was, is that a lot of places confused Arabic studies and Islamic studies. And so they would say, we want an Islamicist who can teach Arabic. Uh, You know, and that's sort of like saying, well, we want somebody uh, who can teach French language and 
uh, Rene Descartes because he both spoke French. You know, it's yes, it's there's some connection, but it's a very distant connection. And it doesn't really do justice to the Islamic tradition. And so was there an increase in, in Arabic studies? Yes. In Islamic studies, not doesn't really seem to be the case. There's definitely been more interest on the part of students. One of the things, though, we have to be careful of is that this is tied to a geopolitical event, that is 9-11, and uh, the ongoing and continuous and possibly perpetual war on terror. And terror equals Muslim in a lot of the American imaginary. And um, Edward Said, who is a professor at Columbia University, wrote a very influential book almost 40 years ago called Orientalism, where he talks about the ways in which we construct ideas uh, of Islam or the Middle East to exert control over it. And so we always have to be careful what we're reading about this part of the world. And in covering his other book, Covering Islam, he talks about the religion of Islam. What we read about this part of the world or what we read about the religion, how much of it is how Muslims understand themselves and how much of it is useful to people in power to achieve certain ends, whether it's colonization, uh, building military bases, funding despotic regimes. And so these are things that we have to be very careful of. So even if we do see an increased interest in this area of the world, does it actually benefit our understanding of Islam and Muslims in the world, or does it benefit somebody else's purpose? And in terms of the question of diversity of what's being taught, one of the things that I think has been interesting being within the academy is at one point there was a discussion, uh, I think you asked specifically about Shiism, should we be offering specific courses on Shiism? The short answer is yes, we should, but should everybody be able to do that? That's a bit impractical. How do we adjust the teaching of Islam so it is less Sunni-centric and more representative of the diversity of what it means to be Muslim, whether that is about Shi'ism, Sufism, um, Wahhabism, uh, because I think a lot of people conflate Wahhabi Islam with Sunni Islam. Uh, how do you integrate the nation of Islam or Ahmadi Islam into a discussion of what it means to be Muslim? And I think there's been a real push within the academy to try to think about introducing Islam that is organically more diverse. Uh, it's a slow process, but I think it is happening. And talking about ideas, what have students found interesting when you particularly discuss the impact of Muslim traditions and cultures in the United States uh, and the West on Western literature, music, arts, etc.? Biggest impact uh, that students have had when I've talked about the cultural impact of Muslims in the United States has been on contemporary music. So they listen to a lot of Muslim artists and don't realize that they're Muslim. So they may listen to Yasin Bey, formerly known as Most Def, uh, and even though he begins his album with Bismillah, they don't recognize that he's Muslim, or Lupe Fiasco. Uh, most recently, A Tribe Called Quest uh, released a new album in 2016. A lot of people didn't realize that they were Muslim, or Dave Chappelle, who's a comedian. You know, they recognize names like Muhammad Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, but they don't recognize current football players, uh, you know, in the sports world. Uh, Hamza and Hussein Abdullah gave up their um, uh, their NFL uh, careers in order to go on Hajj, uh, or understand that Shaquille O'Neal uh, is Muslim, uh, and also went on Hajj. So I think those are things that are always uh, surprising to uh, uh, to them. So you gave a talk at the Michael Carlos Museum of Emory University in 2011 on everyday art, the Islamic impact on American art. In this talk, you spoke about how American popular culture, architecture, and literature, the arts that we engage in every day, 
of course, reflect the cultural diversity of American Muslims and help shape the way Americans understand themselves. Uh, you yeah. say perhaps the least understood of these influences is the cultural impact of Muslim communities in America. Given this impact, how can the arts and popular culture uh, be used to break negative stereotypes and help change the perceptions of Muslims in America and the West generally? I think one of the things we have to understand is that when we look at the ways in which Muslims have been dehumanized in the American context, it is not unique to Muslims. We see this with other minority groups, with other marginalized groups. That marginalization can happen because of race, because of gender, because of sexuality, because of class, uh, and so on. And I think that once we understand that, we understand that the ways to move past that uh, marginalization is to acknowledge it exists. So it's not about our personal benefit, but it's about the benefit of our community. And it can't be the benefit of our community at the cost of somebody else's community. What the arts do is show us the ways in which communities and cultures interact to generate something new, to humanize us as creators, to allow us to tell our stories, and allow us to then change people's minds by having them say, well, if somebody can create beauty, how can we say that they're not human? And I think that's something that we often forget, that we're taught as Muslim. Uh, there is a Hadith Qudsi, a saying, uh, or a conversation, uh, or a saying of God to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his family, where uh, it is that God is beautiful and loves beauty. And so when we engage with that beauty, we are not only manifesting the divine, but we are also declaring and expressing our own humanity. So when we started dealing with Islamophobic rhetoric after 9-11, there was a lot of, well, if people knew the history of Muslims, everything would be okay. The thing is, you can give people a lot of information, but if they have a story that Muslims aren't American, that Muslims are violent, no amount of information is going to change that. You need to change the story that they're being told. You need to give them a counter-narrative, a counter-story using that information. By the time we got caught up there, the discourse, the ways in which we talked about Muslims had changed. You know, racism isn't something, and, and Islamophobia is a type of racism in, in my opinion. Racism is not something that we are going to outgrow as a people, right? It's something that is inherently part of us. And it's something we have to contend with and struggle with. And it adapts, that is racism, it adapts to the new environment. So every time you think you've stopped racism one way, it will adapt and evolve in another direction. And so we constantly need to be expressing ourselves in a variety of different ways. So there was a lot of talk, oh, we should do a Muslim Cosby show, uh, because that helped uh, integrate uh, black people in America. Black people were brought over as enslaved peoples. They've been here for centuries, and we're only thinking about integrating them 300 years after the fact. And we're still dealing with Black Lives Matter. How successful was that? Or we look at Will and Grace and the ways in which we, you know, some media critics say it helped uh, make uh, same-sex marriage more acceptable in America and allowed it to become law of the land. That may be true, but the ways in which that worked actually no longer work for Muslims anymore. We need something new. We can't just be copying what happened before. We have to be learning from it, building on it, and developing it. That, fortunately, is a core part of our theology, right? That our tradition is important. We need to honor it. We need to know it. We need to honor it. But we have to build on it because our current situation, the world in which we live, is very different than the world in which we lived in even a year ago. 
And if we're not advancing that religion, if we're not engaged with our religion and the way it functions in the world, then it's really a museum object. It's not something that impacts the way we live our lives. Are there any other solutions you might provide to uh, Muslims or other such groups to be more effective in changing perceptions, um, like you said, through the popular culture, but maybe perhaps through other means? Well, if we take seriously the idea that the story that is told about Muslims benefits somebody, the first question we have to ask is, who does it benefit and how does it benefit them? Because that tells us an important uh, that gives us an important understanding of how we need to respond. If we can offer somebody else a similar benefit that doesn't hurt us, or if we can point out that, hey, this person is benefiting while the rest of us are suffering, it allows us to build alliances and make connections. The second part of that is how are the structures built up that somebody benefits? So again, I want to turn to Edward Said, the Columbia professor, who talks about the perception of Islam is defined by three major institutions, uh, the media, higher education, academia, scholarship, and government and government-related organizations. So do we have people in these spaces, in media, in academia, in government institutions, that can give a different perception, a different knowledge base of what it means to be Muslim, who can give that and have the influence to have their opinions, to have their input have an impact. If we th if we know that these are the spaces where our story is being told, and we're saying we don't want to get into the spaces to tell our own stories, our stories will never be heard, right? There are very few other channels where we can tell our own stories. Social media, at the end of the day, is essentially media. And so we need to think about, is that the most effective space to get at, or is it a stepping stone for us to get into what is called mainstream media, to leverage our stories and tell our stories with authority and authenticity so that people understand who we are. And so if you want to look for solutions, is there a silver bullet? No, but I think we have to think about the culture in which we're engaged in and how are we supporting each other to get there. And I will tell you a story because it's had a, a real impact on the ways in which I think about community building. Uh, I am an academic. Uh, as you know, education is not monetarily valued in this country. Some would say it's not even socially valued anymore. But economically, it's not a high-paying profession. And uh, I have a, a friend of mine and a smiley friend of mine who is involved in the business world, very much involved in politics, but was telling me, well, I'm going to these events. I'm, you know, I'm paying these fundraising dinners. I don't know how to speak to people about Islam or what it means to be Muslim. And so he would invite me and pay for me to go to these events so that knowing that I had the knowledge, but not the economic means to go, but he had the economic means and not the knowledge. And that's really what community does is that not everybody's going to do everything, but how do we take what we do best and help other people do what they do best and build up that way? Uh, religions share similar core values and ethics and humanity in general shares the same desires and worries. In, in this spirit, wouldn't it be productive to explicitly lay out a consensus, perhaps a universal code of ethic, uh, an ethic for all people stemming from the world's great religions, uh, a cosmopolitan ethic? This dialogue would also include non-believers because we're talking about human society. And as this cosmopolitan ethic is a consensus, it may not accept all the values 
but at the same time, its source would be the shared values of the world's great faiths. And I want to clarify what I mean here is that cosmopolitan ethics is essentially the intersection, not the union of everyone's ethics. It's what we all agree on, not what we all like. Uh, how do we create this consensus to put into action so we can have a sense of ultimate direction? And does everyone even recognize a need for this due to the current political global situations and even uh, antipathy towards other cultures? I think the idea of trying to bring together world traditions to sign off on a charter of ethics, I think is an admirable goal. And I think different religious leaders have tried to do this in small groups. This is not something I don't believe that the common believer can invest in. It has to come from uh, people like the imam, uh, the pope, chief rabbis, muftis, councils of churches, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to try to generate this. Now, you know, there was uh, an attempt by Karen Armstrong, the scholar and uh, religious uh, thinker, to do something called the Charter of Compassion. And it was an admirable task, and it got a lot of movement behind it. But I think what we see there is what happens is when you don't get uh, structured, for structured traditions in particular, where you don't get their religious leadership involved in it early on or invested in it early on, it doesn't necessarily have that groundswell, can have a groundswell effect, but it doesn't necessarily have that institutional support that makes it actually a topic of conversation and impact the way people live their lives. And I think this is the important part, that you can have people on the ground agreeing to one thing and not having institutional support. You can have the institution saying something that's really admirable, but not making it down to the average believer. What we need is something in the middle. And I don't know what that mechanism looks like, because that's a very tall task. But it seems in part that that push has to come from very senior religious leadership. Uh, the common word doctrine, which attempted to look at Christian Muslim relations uh, during the type of during the time of Pope Benedict, I think is one example of this uh, of an institutional engagement where they are trying to make a grassroots uh, impact through ongoing conversation and publication. But again, I don't see it really reaching into the lay audiences of Muslim and Anglican communities and Catholic communities as well. Uh, so you know, I I I say that just to say. Yeah, I have thought a little bit about this and, and can see where the problems are. I'm just not smart enough to know what the solution is. But I think that people are recognizing it, are, are recognizing the need for something like this. I think that religious voices have a very important part to play in the world today, not only as a personal matter for spirituality and spiritual fulfillment, but as a, as a way to say our goal should not always be about the acquisition of wealth. You know, there's nothing wrong with earning money. We've been taught that. But the question is, what do you do with the money? When when the money, when the material goods are the end goal, you forget people's humanity. When you want to create, uh, let's say, an industry like self-driving cars and free people from labor, that's great. But if the result is 
that those people you freed from labor now live in poverty, have no dignity, have no hope, have no ability to care for themselves or care for others. Well, what you've done is you've destroyed their humanity. Our goal should be to think about how do we free people from labor so they can be more thoughtful, more reflective, more spiritual, and working more in a way that pleases them for the benefit of society and the people around them. And I think those are the conversations we're not having because religious voices aren't present in this mix. Yeah, an important one. Uh, you know, so according to the recent uh, latest study from the Pew Forum, around 27% of Americans self-identified themselves uh, as non-affiliated or non-religious, which means they believe in some form of spirituality and the divine, but don't really identify with one particular religion. And if you're actually, and within that, if you're actually under the age of 30, there's a higher chance you're in the non-affiliated camp. Yep. So why do you think there is a sudden increase in the non-affiliated group? I have to spend a lot more time looking at the Pew Forms methodology. I have to wonder that if we did the similar survey and similar method 30 years ago, would we have gotten the same responses? And does, and to use this word cosmopolitan, does a more cosmopolitan American society, does a more diverse American society impact that? So would we have seen cities that were more diverse, the rates would track at about the same rate, right? And as the country has gotten more diverse, more people say they're not affiliated because they may have interfaith partnerships or they are now more aware of religious, different religious traditions and are not comfortable. You know, the 20s and 30s, uh, late teens, 20s, 30s are important times of self-discovery and self-identification, where people are saying, well, I don't know if I'm Catholic or uh, Anglican or Episcopalian or Buddhist or uh, some type, you know, Reformed Jew, or am I a Sufi Muslim? And I think we also have to understand what's happening at this age group, what's happening to the demographics of the United States, the comfort people have in saying things publicly that may actually have been true a generation ago, but people weren't comfortable saying. So I want to be very cautious in saying there's a sudden increase in this spiritual but not religious category. At the same time, I think we have to be conscious of the fact that a lot of people seem to not want to affiliate with a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a temple because they don't feel that that religion speaks to them. You know, it will tell them how to perform a ritual, which is an absolutely important part of that religious tradition. And it will tell them broad moral edicts, you know, don't steal, don't murder. But it won't say, but how do I understand the fact that I am living in a world where I can't afford to buy basic necessities for my family. So I have to find the cheapest product that I can. And in order to do that, that means somebody else isn't getting paid a living wage, which means they can't afford to take care of their family. How do I, how do I live in this world? What is my religion telling me about that space? What is my religion telling me about how do I survive? How do I find hope in a political moment where a lot of people don't find hope? What is my religion telling me about uh, racial protests in this country. Uh, do black lives matter? And is that something we should be talking about? Uh, or is our religious tradition simply silent on the value of lives that aren't our own? Is our ethic, are our ethics only conditional? Uh, 
And so I think that that's where we see a lot of people turning away from organized religion, in that they don't find religion speaking to the needs that they have at the moment in a very specific way, but only in the most general sorts of ways. Another challenge, especially in the West, that people face, people of religion face, uh, and particularly the youth, is the influence of atheism, secularism, and a growing antipathy towards faith, that religion lacks intellectual merit. It feels as though religion is fighting a losing battle, an ideological tsunami. Given your decades of work, again, uh, what, if anything, should be done to create a robust response to this uh, antipathy towards faith? I think when we look at a lot of Western philosophical interventions, uh, particularly post-Enlightenment, we have to be very careful what it is we're adopting. So a lot of people talk about secularism as an ideal. But really, if we look at secularism as it emerges in Europe post-Enlightenment, it really is a substitute for faith. Instead of looking at the church as the organizing principle of life, it's the nation state that becomes the organizing principle of life. Instead of giving your uh, loyalty and your mobilization to some clerical figure, you are now giving it to some sort of representative, uh, a duke or a congressman. And your goal is not to serve God, but to serve the nation state uh, and die for the nation state rather than uh, to give your life uh, in serving God. And so I think that we have to understand that secularism is a competing type of religion. Now, does it give us things like separation of church and state that allow freedom of religion? Yes, within boundaries, and we have to recognize those boundaries. But we have to be very careful that sometimes people say, well, I'm a secularist, which means I'm not religious, when in fact what they're saying is, I'm following a religion that doesn't believe in God. It's a different type of religion, which is distinct from atheism or humanism. Uh, and I think we have to be very clear about that. What all of these competing systems do, and competing here, I don't mean just atheism, humanism, and secularism, but I mean Christianity, Judaism, Islam, is that they have different modes of rationality. They have different ways in which they see the world. The ways in which we see the world, we say makes sense. It's rational. And another person's way of looking at the world is irrational. That actually is one of the things that we have to be very conscious of, that our rationality can be different than somebody else's rationality. And I think this comes back to your question of the cosmopolitan ethic, that we can agree that the premises in which we look at the world and therefore the results of how we act in the world may be different. But if they're consistent with each other within that tradition, what's happening is that we're being told that religion is irrational because one of the basic premises of religion is that you're believing in something you can't see, right? Which is the divine. Arguably, that's the same premise for uh, secularism. You're asking me to believe in something I can't see, which are borders on the world. These borders don't actually exist. They're things that somebody tells me exist, right? So there is a, there is a leap of faith in the nation state as well. And so we've got to understand that somebody is trying to tell us that we are irrational and setting up uh, a way in which they can dominate us. In fact, we're dealing with these competing rationalities. How do we learn from that? point of engagement and point of friction, and again, produce something out of that. You know, it's that old Sufi adage that you only make the pearl when you're irritated. So let's be irritated by this, but how do we make something constructive 
out of this. And the reality is, in my mind, that the way you create that pearl is by being firm in who you are. And I see this question really as being related to the question of the cosmopolitan ethic and the question of um, a spiritual but not religious that you asked, right? Because it is important to recognize our commonalities, but it shouldn't be at the cost of our particularities. So that if we're saying do good and we all believe in doing good, that's wonderful and this is true. But at the same time, what we prioritize as Muslims in terms of doing good will look very different than what somebody from a Jewish tradition would prioritize in terms of doing good. That's not a good thing or a bad thing. It is simply different. And if we can't express those particularities, why we exist in that way, why we do the things we do, why it's important for us, then that generic platitude of do good actually has no meaning. Because one person's good is taking all the money for themselves, and another person's good is taking money and distributing it to the people so they can live a life of dignity. And I think that this is something that we really have to engage with, is that in looking for how to build community, how to think broadly, how to make ourselves relevant, how to deal with competing rationalities, competing systems of power, is to not run away from who we are, or not to revel in the ignorance, our own ignorance of who we are, but to embrace who we are, to become more knowledgeable in who we are, in order to be more grounded to have these deeper conversations that are productive. You have on various occasions heavily critiqued rampant materialism, uh, again, a deeply increasing aspect of a secular society. So while not debating of whether something does or does not exist beyond the material world, could you speak about the dangers of materialism for humanity in general? So when we think about materialism, when I use the term, I'm talking about the acquisition of goods and wealth. And from my perspective, and, and really working off um, some of the teachings of, and working off some of the teachings of Imam Ali, alayhi salam, in uh, Najul Balagha, the collection of some of his teachings, is to understand that when we become attached to objects of the world, that the acquisition of objects in the world uh, becomes an important end for us rather than a means to an end, then we give attention to the world when we should be giving attention to God. So again, the acquisition of comfort is not inherently a bad thing, right? We would like a nice bed. We would like a nice home. Uh, we want our kids to get a good education. But how much is enough and how much of that is being given to spiritual progress? But thinking about what is actually spiritual development versus how much are we working simply to stay alive, which is a very different question. So materialism can easily become a distraction from uh, polishing the mirror of our soul. I, I think that's one trap of materialism. I think the other trap of materialism is that it gives us a sense of accomplishment and achievement, often very immediate. It is pleasurable. And the fact of the matter is, to be human is not always to be in a state of pleasure. It is not always to be happy. That is a drug. It is to aim for contentment, to be satisfied. And when we aim for that instant happiness, what we're doing is, we're giving up the struggle that defines our life. Because again, it is that struggle, that, that irritant, that always striving that makes us better and has us 
think about what is the pearl we are producing. It also keeps us from our pain. It keeps us from the ability to grow from our failures, from our pain and confronting that pain and growing from that experience. And it keeps us from connecting to other human beings. We simply measure by worth. What are they wearing? What is so-and-so wearing? Kind of what type of car are they driving? What type of house do they live in? Not how can I help this person or how can this person help me or how can we help each other? No, instead we pass judgment. And we say, well, okay, this person is driving this car. I feel like I'm better than this person. I should be driving a better car. And so we're always judging ourselves by material attributes and material aspects. Instead of saying, what is this? Who is this person like as a human being, as a person? How can I better myself by being in contact with this person? Right? And so I think that's what material does, materialism does, is it keeps us from God. It keeps us from ourselves and it keeps us from making human connection. And basically what we do is we willingly turn ourselves into nothing more than an object by denying the, the, our divine connection and our very own humanity. So turning to the future now, you are the founder of Islamicate, uh, a consultancy focusing on religious literacy and cultural competency. In a globalized world where economies are intertwined and people from various countries are constantly moving, especially people from Muslim countries uh, and the East moving elsewhere in large numbers. What can be done about improving religious and cultural literacy again? And what solutions would you suggest? Here, I think we have to come back to a question of what secularism is. You know, So if secularism is an attempt to replace religion with the idea of the nation state, then we have to understand that there is a vested interest. And again, who benefits? There is a vested interest in making sure that the language of religion doesn't have a a base of power, doesn't have a relevancy in the world. And so religion is irrational. It's not practical. But the fact of the matter is religion is a fundamental part of human existence. It has been it is, and it will be a fundamental part of human existence. And you miss so much of the world around you without understanding how religion functions. You don't necessarily have to believe in a religion. You don't necessarily have to believe in Christianity to understand how Christianity has affected European architecture or European literature. I think that this is really important. And so, you know, religious literacy, like any other type of literacy, is an important part of understanding the human experience and is an important part of understanding how the world functions. You know, we wouldn't say that you don't need to learn how to read because we now have television, right? That's ridiculous. And so the idea that you don't need to learn about religion or how religion functions because we now have the nation state is equally ridiculous on its face. And so I think we just have to be very conscious of saying that we don't need to know something because we've got something else. Hussein, thank you once again. Thank you, Sal, for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candidate Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.